0: This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast.
1: Greetings, friends, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 134, entitled The Miller-Smith Debate on Jesus' Pre-Existence, Opening Statements. As always, the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God, and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith. As always, I will be your host. Last Sunday, August 16th, I participated in a debate on the topic of whether Jesus Christ consciously preexisted his birth. My debate-slash-dialogue partner was Eric Miller, who affirmed the statement, while I denied that Jesus consciously preexisted his birth. You can hear the debate in its entirety at the YouTube link in the document linked with this episode, or by checking out the Biblical Unitarian Podcast Facebook group, or I'm sure you could just search for it on YouTube. Just type in Eric Miller, Dustin Smith, Jesus, preexistence, it'll come up. It should be the first result. Officially, the debate lasted an hour and a half. After the debate, Mr. Miller and I stayed to answer a few audience questions at a more casual level. I will probably have an episode of the Biblical Unitarian podcast where I include this question and answer session. But technically speaking, the debate ended with the closing statements. I will be uploading for the weekly podcast smaller chunks of the debate and offering some comments and reflections on them. This week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast will consist of Eric Miller's opening statement, followed by my opening statement. As far as reflections are concerned in regard to these opening statements, I felt that my prepared statement, in hindsight, was one of my strongest points in the debate, my opening statement laid out five significant points that I feel are logically sound, scripturally accurate, and widely supported by the evidence I supplied. I felt that the pace in which I gave my opening statement was good, allowing me to get all the information I wanted to present at the start, as well as keep to a speaking pace that wasn't too rushed, difficult to follow. In regard to Mr. Miller's opening statement, I was able to write down all of the texts that he mentioned as he said them. I was able to make some notes in regard to those texts and to consider how I would organize my response to them. Four of the texts that he mentioned are under the umbrella of wisdom Christology, a topic that I made in my final point of my opening statement as you will no doubtably hear within the rest of the debate the way that we understand wisdom christology is a central point to this particular debate before we listen to the opening statements i wanted to offer thanks to mr miller for a lively and respectful debate and I wanted to offer my thanks to Brandon Duke for moderating the exchange. I would work with these honorable gentlemen again. So if anyone would like to have a debate, if they'd like to have a debate with Mr. Miller, or if they would like to have a moderator, I would recommend both of these persons. Without further ado, let's shift to the audio of the opening statements introduced by the debate's moderator
0: all right we're at 6 15 according to my clock so i think we're gonna go ahead and get started um welcome everyone again uh thank you for tuning in for a debate on a topic central to our understanding of the identity of jesus of nazareth and therefore of significant importance to any christian uh, tonight our topic for discussion is did jesus consciously pre-exist his birth er- uh, mr eric miller will be affirming and Dr. Dustin Smith will be denying that claim. Uh, Eric Miller is a 25-year-old Bible college student living in Cincinnati, Ohio, where he works and does evangelistic ministry focused on reaching Spanish-speaking people uh, and uh, with the gospel message. In the future, he hopes to do evangelism and discipleship through local churches in the Republic of Mexico and in the United States. And Eric believes the Father alone is the only true God, but is happy to link arms with Unitarians and Trinitarians alike whenever possible in advancing the kingdom. Uh, Dustin Smith in the negative will be, uh, he earned his uh, PhD in 2014. He has taught at Atlanta Bible College and he is now on staff at Columbia Theological Seminary. He served on the editorial team of the Journal from the Radical Reformation and the Journal of Biblical Unitarianism. Dr. Smith co-authored the book, The Son of God, Three Views of the Identity of Jesus, where he develops the case that the biblical authors held to a high human Christology. He has pastored several biblical Unitarian churches in the United States, and he currently podcasts at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, which I would heartily recommend. Dr. Smith enjoys reading, coffee, bacon, memes, and rickrolling his unsuspecting friends. Um, Our debate tonight will be structured as follows. Each of our debaters will have a 15-minute opening statement, followed by a 10-minute rebuttal, followed by a six-minute second rebuttal. Uh, We'll take a quick break uh, at that point, uh, let our uh, guys catch their breath, maybe use the restroom, after which we'll do eight minutes of cross-examination each and seven minutes of closing, um, closing statements. And that, uh, that will end our debate, but both of our debaters have agreed to stay on afterwards to answer some audience questions, so feel free to add those uh, to the Q&A section of the Zoom webinar as the debate unfolds, and we'll pick them up at the end. Um, and so let us begin, and may our debaters efforts be to the glory of God and the edification of the body of Christ. Uh, Mr. Miller, if you're ready, um, you may begin whenever you'd like. You'll have 15 minutes.
2: Awesome. All right. Well, thank you everybody for, uh, wow, that was crazy and ten times harder than it had to be, but uh, thank God that we're able to get this going and uh, hopefully the ensuing discussion will be worth all of that garbage. Um, so this evening I'm going to defend two contentions. Uh, the first contention is that there are good reasons to conclude that Jesus had a conscious personal existence with God prior to his conception. That's what I mean by pre-existence, real pre-existence, and pre-incarnate. Uh, the second contention is that there are no comparably good reasons to conclude that Jesus did not have a conscious personal existence with God prior to his conception. So I'm going to leave it to Dr. Smith to uh, defend against that contention while I give 10 lines of biblical evidence in support of the first contention. Um, as I understand, it, Dr. Smith doesn't deny that little preexistence was a facet of ancient Jewish and Christian thinking. And I don't deny that ideal or notional preexistence, something existing in God's mind but not really existing, was also native to those people in that time period. So the question is, which framework best explains the text in question this evening? The arguments are as follows. First, Jesus enjoyed glory with God before the world began. In John 17, Jesus prays in verses 4 through 5, uh, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence for the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here, Jesus asks unambiguously the Father to give me glory which he had in his possession with him before the beginning of the world, that's obviously before his birth. About his glory, John writes in 1.14, uh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. About John through 18 the late scholar James Dunn writes, it's beyond dispute, the word is preexistent, and Christ is the preexistent word incarnate. Uh, Jesus had glory was not perspective, waiting to be poured out, but had by him, implying he possessed it at one point, and then ceased to possess it at another, which makes little sense if he didn't exist. Uh, Not to mention the plain contrast between glorifying the Father on earth in verse 4 versus glorification with the Father in the heavenly realms in verse 5 with the same glory he had had, not a perspective glory, but a real one. Second, Jesus participated with God in creating the world. Colossians through 17 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Also in Hebrews 1, 2 through 3, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appoints the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And both passages aim to prove the preeminence of Christ over all things. Notice how Christ acts as the bookends of all creation. In Colossians, he is before all things, the first point of creation, and all things were created through him. In Hebrews, all things were created in him, and he is the one who will inherit all things. Deny that Jesus was literally before all things who that's the argument. This is not a debate about preeminence versus preexistence, as some have characterized it, but preeminence because of preexistence. Thirdly, Jesus existed before Abraham. From John 8, 50, 8 51 to 53, and 56 to 58, we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, you will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, did the prophet that you say, if anyone keeps my word, you will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet fifty years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Notice the Jewish audience understood Jesus to be making himself out to be contemporary of Abraham. You're not yet 50 years old, they said, so how could Jesus have seen Abraham? And notice Jesus' claim to pre-existence both tacitly affirms and perfectly answers their assumptions. They charge, are you greater than Abraham? Are you greater than the prophets? Have you seen Abraham? And the answer, yes, yes, and yes, because I was already around before Abraham was born. Again, the Jews understood him not to be talking about mere existence in God's mind, but real existence before Abraham, which made him greater than Abraham and the prophets, and they tried to kill him for this claim. Fourthly, Jesus was the rescuer and destroyer of Israel. In Jude 4-5 through in the ESV we read, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. While older translations read Lord in place of Jesus in verse 5, they do so not on the basis of external textual considerations but internal concerns which is why the United Bible, Bible Society Editorial Committee notes, critical principles seem to require the adoption of Iesus, which admittedly is the best attested reading among Greek and versional witnesses. Uh, in quote, thus the ESV, NLT, NET, as well as critical Greek editions, and that's the All in 28th, the UBS, excuse me, 5th edition, and the Tyndale House of the Greek New Testament choose Iesus as a correct reading in verse 5. However, if even somebody wants to argue for the Lord reading, the argument stands, as Pearson Watson notes, an examination of the two words "curiosity" and in "jude" show that they are closely related. The immediate preceding use of "curiosity" verse 4, denying the only Master and our Lord Jesus. Here, curios is clearly linked to Jesus. Thus, even if one prefers the textual reading for curios, one can argue that curios in verse 5 should be understood to refer to Jesus. Thus, Jesus is identified as the one who rescued Israel out of Egypt and later destroyed the disbelievers. Uh, in Malachi 3, 1-2, we read, this is the fifth argument, that Jesus was the messenger of the covenant. In Malachi 3, 1-2, we read, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. In this passage, we have three actors, the Lord of hosts, his messenger, and the messenger of the covenant. As for the covenant, Malachi has already introduced in 2-5 the covenant made with Levi in Numbers 25. and alludes to, in 2-13-16, uh, the divorce section of the Sinai covenant. As for the actors, the Lord of hosts, obviously Jehovah God, and Jesus in Mark 1-2 and Matthew 3-3 identifies the messenger preparing the way of John the Baptist. So the messenger of the covenant who is to come, reading the scripture canonically, must be Jesus. But if he was the one who ministered and delivered the Old Testament covenant, it follows he was Jesus in existence and acted prior to his conception. Six, Jesus was behind the rock in the desert with the Israelites. First Corinthians 10, one through 4 states, for I would not, brethren, have you ignorant that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed to the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual food, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for the drink of the spiritual rock that followed them, in the rock was Christ. Uh, now Paul has, and will go on to warn the Corinthian believers not to think that spiritual blessing somehow makes them immune to God's judgment for their disobedience, and he uses the example of the Israelites. Uh, firstly, the Israelites were baptized into Moses just as the Corinthians were baptized into Christ, and secondly, the Israelites had a common spiritual food and drink, just like the Corinthians drink the body and blood of Christ in communion. And yet just as the Israelites were not spared for their idolatry, neither will the Corinthians escape. Yet Paul also adds one more amazing thing they had in common. Both groups were nourished by Christ. Just like Christ gives life to the Corinthian believers, Christ gave life giving water to the Israelites in the desert. Paul says the rock was Christ, not is Christ, like he is the Lamb of God, he is the door, he is the bread of life, emphasizing Christ was truly present in the miracle. The force of the argument, however, is kneecapped the continuity between Christ really present in the present and Christ really present in the past is removed. Seventh, Jesus is pre preexistent Messiah, or a promised deliverer of the Jewish nation. Uh, Micah 2, f- f- excuse me, Micah 5, 2-4. Two, two, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she whose neighbor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers, return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. Uh, there, there's no question that the king yet to be revealed is Jesus, according to Matthew 2.6. However, Micah explains his origins or going forth, uh, Exodus, as the Greek text supports the Septuagint, are from old through ancient times. Uh, the, te- the two Hebrew phrases, which correspond to from old through ancient times in ESV, uh, are idiomatic, I mean to call to mind events in Israel's history especially the Exodus and Canaan conquests. Uh, take one example. Uh, in the, all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. Uh, in his love and all his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all from days of old. Uh, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Uh, therefore he turned to be their enemy, enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Uh, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put them in midst of his Holy Spirit? Thus, it appears a messianic king had goings forth their or origins or activity, even in the history of Israel, specifically calling to mind the exodus and subsequent events, which fits very well, what we have seen already in Judea and other passages. The eighth argument, Jesus was a Spirit in the prophets. First Peter 1, 10-12. Considering his salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grave that was to be searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Just as the Spirit of God is a Spirit mediated by God, so here Peter reveals that the Spirit which moved the prophets about the coming Messiah was mediated by none other than Christ, thus the name Spirit of Christ. This is not a new concept. Elsewhere, Paul talks about the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ interchangeably in Romans 8, 9. And we know that Jesus gave this Holy Spirit to the disciples. In this passage, just as in 1 Corinthians, Peter closes the gaps between the prophet's message and the indwelling of the believers, both of which are mediated by the one and the same really existing Christ, his real power and presence. Uh, ninth, Jesus is the glory of God in Isaiah 6, John 1236 through 40. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many, so many times before them, they still did not believe him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed from us? And whom had the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I will steal them. Isaiah saw these things, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Uh, there is no question that the antecedent of the personal pronouns um, on verse 41 refer back to uh, Jesus. That's when they ask In what sins did is Isaiah see Jesus' glory? Well, if we returns to the source of the first quotation, Isaiah 6. This is what it reads, uh, verses 1 through 5, uh, that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the singing, the Pharisees singing, Holy Lord is full of glory. And Isaiah cries out, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What Isaiah saw was what the author of Hebrews described Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God to be incarnated on earth, and to provoke the very objective you read cited in the scriptures. Uh, Philippians 2 5 through 11, this is the tenth and final argument, Jesus the Christ incarnate. Um, in Philippians 25 5 11, it describes Christ who existed in God's form, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. Now, the phrase form of God in verse 6 refers to the pre incarnate glory of Christ. As Daniel J. Fabricatore showed in his, the most extensive study of the word morphe, or form in verses 6 8. The word in Hellenistic Greek usually simply refers to outward appearance. This is exceedingly helpful because the word is only used three times in the New Testament. In the standard Greek lexicon, the BDAG, the entry for morphe reads form, outward appearance, sheep. In the theological dictionary of the New Testament supplies the definition, that which may be perceived by the senses. Thus it seems apparent the form of God has to do with godlike or divine glory's outward appearance perceptible to the senses. This is not consistent with Christ Jesus on Earth, but is consistent with Christ in his pre-incarnate glory. This is the glory he emptied himself up by taking a sermon's form, becoming a man. From preexistent, preincarnate pre-incarnate glory to a man just like you and I, behold, this is our Christ. Uh, can I ask you how much time I have?
0: you've got three minutes on the dot.
2: Oh my goodness, I was trying to make up for time and I went a lot faster than I I thought. Uh, Um, I'm going to use this opportunity to make uh, two, I think, important clarifications. Um, First of all, it's not going to be enough in this debate for Dr. Smith to simply show that words or theological concepts uh, that other people might have used in a way not thinking about preexistence. Uh, were used by the New Testament authors and thereby necessarily preclude preexistence. For example, it's not enough for Dr. Smith to say, "Well, Paul's using wisdom Christology here," just to use a random example. Um, but wisdom Christology in this uh, extra-biblical writer didn't include an actual preexistent person. Uh, he's going to have to show that the New Testament authors themselves meant to preclude preexistence in those uh, passages, even if they're appropriating wisdom Christology language or concepts. Uh, The same goes for uh, words like uh, Christ or Jesus. Um, uh, What did the New Testament authors mean by that? Uh, Because we have to understand that words are used in a particular context and only have a meaning in a particular context. And the New Testament authors are in charge of the information that they're giving for. So we have to first let them define that information before we go to the outside sources. Um, I also think that we can advance a positive theological argument for preexistence, and that is the question of the virgin birth. Um, on the adoption of preexistence, it makes sense that Jesus would have an unusual birth uh, because while the virgin birth preserves his existence as a man, it also harkens to the fact that he did not come into existence uh, in the womb of Mary or at his conception. Um, but we don't similarly see a justification for the virgin birth um, on uh, the position that Dr. Smith is giving. Um, God could have prevented Jesus from having sin some other way. It wasn't necessary that he, uh, be born of a virgin. Um, so I think that you can advance also a positive argument for why preexistence makes theological things in the New Testament. And, uh, at that point, I think I'm just going to end it. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Eric, Mr. Miller. Um, and thank you for working, uh, working through the, the technical difficulties, um, yeah. Dr. Smith, whenever you're ready to respond, you'll also have 15 minutes.
3: In my opening statement, I want to introduce five facts that demonstrate that Jesus did not consciously pre-exist prior to his birth. Number one, Jesus is simply not present with God anywhere within the Hebrew Bible, within the Old Testament, based on a variety of passages. Deuteronomy 4.35 says, To you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh, he is God, there is no other beside him. Job 9, verse 8 says, Yahweh alone stretched out the heavens. Isaiah forty four twenty four, 24, a very powerful passage that we're going to come back to. says, I, Yahweh, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Isaiah 45, verse 5 says, I am Yahweh, there is no other. A couple of verses later, Isaiah 45, verse 21, there is none except me. In the opening verses of Hebrews, um, has God talking about the way that he communicated formally and the way that he now communicates, says in verses 1 through 2, that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us and his Son. So it's only in these last days that he has spoken to us uh, through the medium of his Son. Okay, so if the Messiah is just not present in the Old Testament— how does the Old Testament speak of the Messiah? Well, this leads me to my second point. Point number two is Jesus is the promised human being who descended from the line of many key persons. Abraham is promised that the world will be blessed through his seed, through his descendants, which culminated in Christ. You can see this in Genesis 12, 13, 15, and 17. We see in Genesis 49, 10 that the scepter will not depart from Judah's tribe, indicating that the Messiah will be a lineal descendant of Judah. Numbers twenty four seventeen says that a star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. So a descendant of the of Jacob and of the uh, nation of Israel. Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen has God saying, I will raise up a prophet from among your countrymen, and I will put my words in his mouth. Psalm eighteen verse fifty says, God gives salvation to his king, God's anointed, to David and his seed forever. The anointed king, the Messiah, will be David's descendant, David's king. This is reaffirmed in Psalm 132, 11. Yahweh declares of the fruit of your body, speaking about David, I will sit upon your throne. So the Messiah will come out of David's body. He is a lineal descendant of David. This is continued in Jeremiah 23, 5. Days are coming when I... Yahweh will raise up for David a righteous branch. We have the family tree of David, and the Messiah is described as a branch, an offshoot of David's family tree. Now, Matthew begins his gospel by agreeing with the Old Testament that Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham and the son of David, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Hebrews chapter 7, and verse 14 says that it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. It was evident. It was clear. It's obvious. And the last chapter and book of the Bible, Revelation 22, has Jesus himself admitting that I am the descendant of David, Revelation 22:16. 16. So if the Messiah is not alive in the Old Testament, but instead is promised, when does he physically appear in history? This leads me to my third point. Number three, Jesus is brought into existence at the time of his birth, and people do not consciously exist prior to being brought into existence. The Gospel of Matthew opens by clearly describing in precise detail how Jesus came into existence. I refer to Matthew 1.1, where Jesus is the descendant of Abraham and the descendant of David. After over 40 instances in which the Greek verb yanao is used to describe the begetting of sons by their fathers in Matthew's genealogy, the same verb yanao is used to describe the bringing into existence of Jesus in Matthew 1.16 where Jesus came ek Mariam, not through Mary, but out of Mary. Matthew one eighteen says that the genesis of Jesus is as follows, using the Greek word genesis. Now, our debate is deeply interested in the question of when did the genesis of Jesus occur? Did the genesis of Jesus occur back before the creation of the heavens and the earth? or did it occur at Jesus' birth? Matthew is about to tell us. Let's pay attention. Verses 19 through 20, note how Joseph was going to send Mary away until the angel of the Lord revealed to him that, quote, the child who has been begotten in her is of the Holy Spirit. Again, using the Greek verb yanao. So the first chapter of the New Testament rigorously argues line after line, verse after verse, that Jesus, the promised descendant of David and the descendant of Abraham, came into existence due to the miraculous birth inside the womb of his mother. Luke likewise begins his gospel with an account of the birth of Jesus. In Luke 1.31, we have Gabriel visiting Mary, and he says in verse 32 that Jesus will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High in the future, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, meaning that David is Jesus' ancestor. In Luke one thirty-four, Mary's like, how is this possible? I've never known a man. Verse 35 is the key point. Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child being begotten will be called the Son of God, using, again, Yanao as a present passive participle. And then Luke chapter 3 has his own genealogy in reverse order, which traces Jesus all the way back farther than simply Abraham, but culminating in Adam. So Jesus is a descendant of Adam. Even the Gospel of John has Jesus himself commenting on his birth. Jesus answered Pilate, You have correctly said that I am a king. For this I have been born. Again, using the Greek verb you know, John 18, 37. Paul mentions the birth of Jesus from the line of David at the beginning of Romans. First couple of verses, Paul, bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, verse three, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David, Romans 1, 1 and verse three. Paul also mentions Jesus' birth in Galatians, chapter four and verse four, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And 2 Timothy also mentions Jesus as a lineal descendant of David when describing the gospel. 2 Timothy 2:8 says, "Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel." Now much of the debate, it seems, is going to come down to how we define preexistence. So this is my four point is that the Messiah's pre in the Bible is frequently described as notional, meaning within God's plans, purposes, and foreknowledge. Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was, quote, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So we know that God had a predetermined plan and foreknowledge, and Jesus was in God's foreknowledge. First Peter one twenty says that he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Not known— but foreknown. Jesus was in God's foreknowledge. And Revelation 13.8 describes the lamb who has been slain from the foundation of the world. Now, obviously not literally. Nobody thinks that the lamb was literally slaughtered at the foundation of the world, only in God's plans and purposes. Now, in fact, when we situate the Bible in the Jewish thought world, out of which its writings emerged, we can see very clear evidence that Jewish preexistence was primarily notional, not literal. In the Babylonian Talmud, we can see that seven things were created before the world was made, and these are they, Torah, Repentance, the Garden of Eden, Gehenna, the Throne of Glory, the House of the Sanctuary, and notice this, the name of the Messiah. Not the person of the Messiah, but just his name was created before the world was made. And that's in tractate Peshaim and Naderim. Uh In the Targum of Zechariah, which is uh, dated to the first century, It says that God, quote, will reveal his Messiah whose name was spoken from the beginning. Notice it's the Messiah's name that was spoken from the beginning. And in Genesis Rabbah, the commentary on Genesis, it says that six things preceded the creation of the world. Some of them were actually created while the creation of others was already contemplated. So he makes a distinction between literal pre-existence, actually created, and things that were contemplated. And after he lists those six things, he comes down to the name of the Messiah, which was contemplated. So when he has an opportunity to say the Messiah was actually, actually created, he says, no, this author says that it was contemplated. So... Down to our last point, fifth point, which is clearly going to be the biggest point uh, of discussion, is that the New Testament writers from a very early stage portrayed Jesus as the climactic embodiment of God's personified word and personified wisdom. So we have in John 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Well, he's referring us back to genesis in the beginning and what do we have there genesis 1 3 and god said let there be light so god's word there is his creative and powerful speech it's not a separate person alongside god we can see this also in psalm 33 6 by the word of the lord the heavens are made and the psalmist is clear to help us that it's the breath of god's mouth okay god's word is the breath of his mouth it's not a conscious person alongside god Uh, Psalm 147, verse 15, has the personification of the Word, just like we see in John 1. God sends forth his command to the earth, and his Word runs very swiftly. Look at that personification, okay? And uh, we have wisdom Christology, which is uh, arguably one of the dominant Christologies in the New Testament. Paul outright says that he has wisdom Christology, 1 Corinthians 1.30. Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God. Now, we look at wisdom in the Old Testament— Uh, Proverbs 3.19 says Yahweh, with wisdom, founded the earth. Okay, so Yahweh created with his wisdom, but then the proverb goes on to define what wisdom is. By understanding, he established the heavens. God's wisdom is his understanding, not a conscious person alongside him. Now, Lady Wisdom, which is the female personification of God's wise engagement with his creation and his people, appears frequently in Proverbs chapters 1 through 9, which the consensus of Proverbs commentators admit is a personification, not a conscious person. Now, in fact, the New Testament writers were deeply rooted in the longstanding Jewish practice of depicting human beings as the embodiment of God's personified wisdom. We can see this in the biblical book of Proverbs. We can see this in Sirach in 180 BC, and we can see this in Philo in the first century. All of those predate the writings of the New Testament. So to sum up, I have five points that I think prove that Jesus did not consciously preexist exist his birth. Number one, Jesus is simply not present with God anywhere in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Number two, Jesus is the promised human being who descended from the line of many key persons, Abraham, Judah, David, etc. Number three, Jesus is brought into existence at the time of his birth. Number four, the Messiah's pre-existence in the Bible is frequently described as notional within God's plans, purposes, and foreknowledge. And number five, the New Testament writers portray Jesus as the embodiment, or dare I say incarnation, of God's personified word and personified wisdom. So uh, I look forward to a lively debate with this fine gentleman, and thanks everybody for showing up today.
1: Thanks for listening to the opening statements. I'm just going to have the closing part of my podcast episode here. And I want to encourage everyone to join us next week as we look at the first and second rounds of rebuttals, hearing from Mr. Miller and from me as we engage with the opening statements. Please consider supporting the Biblical Unitarian Podcast as it aims to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support the podcast for free by simply sharing your favorite episodes with your friends and by writing an honest review on iTunes. If you would like to donate to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, you may check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. I want to offer a special thanks to Dustin Williams for post-production and for editing the Biblical Unitarian Podcast Thank you so much to the listeners. Look forward to seeing you next week. Until next time, you folks, please take care.